Well, if you do have a, a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me back to that passage we read in 2 Kings and chapter 2. And, and as I said earlier, we're going to continue in our series in the life of the prophet Elisha. And uh, the past two weeks, we looked at Elijah's departure into heaven. But this morning, though, I'd like us to move on from that particular incident to consider this uh, miracle of the healed waters that Elisha performs here in verses 19 uh, through to 22. It's interesting to, just to note that the relatively little bits of information that we have regarding the life of Elisha are, are more often than not centred around uh, the various miracles that uh, he performed. Depending on uh, how you count the miracles, uh, by my reckoning, Elisha performs 13 miracles in his life, and he performs one even after his death. And that's uh, interesting when we compare that with the ministry of um, Elijah, who, again, depending on how you count it, performed seven miracles. So Elisha performs twice as many miracles as Elisha. And some people view that as a further proof that he received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But coming back to uh, this passage here, verses 19 through to 22, we have the second of Elisha's recorded miracles, the first, of course, uh, being back in verse 14 when he strikes the waters of the River Jordan and the, and the rivers uh, and the waters part for him. And it's this uh, second miracle that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. And I want to just uh, highlight three things from uh, these verses this morning. And the first thing that I want us to think about this morning is a cursed city, a cursed City. You recall last week that the sons of the prophets said they requested permission uh, to go and look for Elijah. They thought that the spirit of the Lord maybe had taken him to some valley or to some mountain. And uh, despite Elisha telling them not to go, uh, in the end he had relented and they had gone. And you remember how these 50 strong men had gone off on this quest in verse uh, 17 and 18. And uh, they hadn't found him. And Elisha has to tell them, you know, I told you so. I told you not to go, but you still went. But we read there in verse 18 that while they've gone off, it tells us that Elisha tarried at Jericho. And we briefly mentioned something of the history of Jericho last Sunday, but it's worth our while this morning just looking a little bit more closely at some of the details regarding this city. You remember that in the days of Joshua, it was an idolatrous city. It was also a city that stood in direct defiance against the lords. And the children of Israel were camped uh, on the other side of the Jordan before they crossed over into entering the promised land. They were in direct opposite from the, from the, from the city of Jericho. The children of Israel were on one side, the Jericho uh, River Jordan in the middle, and the Jericho city on the other side. It was situated about five miles from the banks of the river. And it was the first city they came to when they crossed over into the promised land. It was the first city that defied the children of Israel. It was shut up, it was closed. And so it was a symbolism of defiance against God and against his people. And as you read the book of Joshua, you can see that it was evidently a mighty city. It had a king. The walls of the city were so considerable that houses were built upon them. It was a city of affluence and 
wealth. That's evidenced by the spoils that they took at the end. You remember the gold and the silver that the Israelites took? You can read about that in in Joshua chapter 6. But it was also a city that was situated in a very fertile and beautiful plain. Tucked away in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a little reference to um, the city of Jericho. And it gives us a very interesting little detail in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 3. It describes uh, the city there and it says that it is a city of palm trees. The valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees. And the mention of palm trees there is it's an interesting little detail because it suggests this was a place of fruitfulness, it was a place of growth, that it was green, that it was pleasant, uh, with the Jordan flowing nearby that overflowed its banks at the time of harvest and so on. This was, this was somewhere desirable to live. It's probably the area where King Eglon lived in Judges chapter 3. It talks about the valley of palm trees there. And you see, even this place here, it's in a beautiful, beautiful location. Even the very name Jericho, it means a place of fragrance. And so it suggests this is something where there was fertility. This is a place of beauty, a place that was pleasant to live. And you notice that's what the people say in 2 Kings in our passage here, 2 Kings in chapter 2 and verse 19 These men of the city, they approach Elisha and they say to him, look, the situation of this city is pleasant. It's a a beautiful place. And the word pleasant there in verse 19, it has a variety of meanings in the Bible. Sometimes it means something that's good. Sometimes it can mean beautiful or joyful or delightful. Sometimes it's used to talk about something that's prosperous. On other occasions, it conveys the sense of being superior. This was a a superior, a beautiful, a wonderful city. It's the sort of desirable place that everyone wants to retire to, a place in the sun. I'll go and live in Jericho. What a wonderful place this was. And the men say to Elisha, look, it's pleasant as you can see. It's wonderful. We've got these palm trees. We've got this beautiful river. We've got this lovely valley. We've got these crops. It's so good. But then there's a sting in the tail. There's a but. You notice what the men say. The situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth. But. But. It says the water is naught and the ground barren. And the word naught there is usually translated as evil in the Bible. It's in direct opposite to pleasant in the Bible. You think of the Garden of Eden, you have the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the same two words that we've got translated as pleasant and naught here, good and evil. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, Moses said to the people, I've set before you life and death. It's the same two words, good, evil, life, death. Jericho then is good, but the water is evil. Jericho's situation seems to be one of life, but the water is death. When it says there that the ground is barren, the word literally means to miscarry. Their livestock and their wives miscarry. Something that is very serious here, something very evil and deadly. This, this lush valley has water that, is, that causes all sorts of deadly things. And the reason for this was because the city was cursed. 
In Joshua chapter 6 and verse 17, it says, The city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord's. And they were not to take anything from the city. You remember, it was cursed for them to take anything when they, when they took the city. You remember how Joshua also told the people expressly that it was never to be rebuilt. In Joshua 6, verse 26, he says, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. And Achan broke the first of those commandments by taking silver and gold. He took the accursed thing. And centuries later, in 1 Kings 16, we read of Heal the Bethelite breaking the second because he laid the foundations of this city once again. And the Lord clearly states throughout the scriptures that if we break God's law, we're cursed. Deuteronomy 28 tells us those who do not hearken to his voice, those who will not obey his commandments. He says, cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. And you can go through that passage, cursed, 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 if you break God's commandments. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body, and so on. And so Jericho, though pleasant, was a city under the curse of God. And friends, this morning, what we see here in Jericho is a picture of this entire world. While there's much in this world that is good, while there's much in nature and creation that is beautiful and pleasant, this world is under the curse of God. Sin has marred and it's spoiled everything. It's unhinged the whole of creation. Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. It's because of sin. And what is true of this world in general is true of mankind. We're all under the curse of God, aren't we? We read that in Galatians chapter 3. We're under the curse of the law because we do not obey the law. We're cursed because we've broken God's law, because we're sinned, we're now under its curse. And it's a curse of death, just like in Jericho. Instead of knowing spiritual life, there's spiritual death. Instead of there being fruits of, of righteousness and holiness in people's lives, instead of, of lives of faith and worship, there is, there is nothing but spiritual barrenness. Friends, let me ask you this morning, do you, do you realize this? Sin has twisted and distorted everything in this world. And that includes us. Our hearts are desperately wicked. From our hearts flow all sorts of abominations and corruptions. We're under the curse of God. When we look at the world with that lens on, it all begins to make sense, doesn't it? Why is there natural disasters? Why is there corrupt governments? Why is there so much wickedness in the world? It's because sin has entered this world. I remember going to see a film at the cinema, a 3D film, and I thought for a while I'd just take the glasses off. And as you watch the film, you can sort of see what's kind of going on, but it doesn't fully make sense. It's not until you put the glasses on, is it, that it begins to all come alive and you see it. And when, as it were, you put on the, the lens of Scripture and you see that this world is cursed, it all begins to make sense. You begin to realize that everything is under the curse of God, just like Jericho. But secondly, though, this morning, we've seen the cursed city. Do you notice with me inadequate instruments? Inadequate instruments. Elisha says to this men of the cities, look, I want you to bring me a new cruise. A cruise was a, 
a small dish or a, or a bowl. He says it has to be one that's never been used before. And he says, I want you to put salt in it. In the scriptures, of course, salt has, uh, was very symbolic. It was used in the meat offering in Leviticus 2. Job talks of how it was used for seasoning unsavory food like, like we do. It was a condiment on the table. However, in the scriptures, the predominant picture is that salt was a preservative. Salt prevents decay, doesn't it? That's why Christ, you remember, instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light in this, in this world that's decaying. We're to be, as it were, a preservative element in this cursed world. The link to that concept of preservation is also the concept of perpetuity. On a number of occasions in the Bible, we encounter a covenant of salt, an agreement of salt. It was to be one that was perpetual. It was to never end. And so, so salt, therefore, has these different, different aspects of symbolism attached to it. And Elisha takes this cruise of salt, this simple bowl and this little bit of salt, and he goes to the spring, he goes to the very source of the waters, and he casts the salt into the waters. And as he, he does so, he says, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters, in verse 21. Now, if you were, if you were watching on at this point, you would have been forgiven if you'd thought Elisha was mad. You just think about this with me this morning. There were two very simple objects, a bowl and some salt. But this problem was, was complex. You know, I've no doubt that the people of the city had tried all sorts of remedies to solve the problem. They had come to all, you know, tried all sorts of potions, maybe gone to all sorts of witch doctors and the like to, to try and solve this complex problem. How then could just two very simple objects solve it? But not only were they two simple objects, they were also two small objects. Elisha's able to carry them in his hands. He's got this bowl, he's got this salt, but the problem is vast. The, the dilemma was large, it affects a whole city, it was a large water source. And it's not just the city, is it? It obviously supplies the whole valley, all the farmers. Could really, you know, could, could such small objects solve what is a big problem? But not only were they simple objects and small objects, but they were insufficient objects, weren't they? You know, could, a, could a bowl be useful in taking death out of the water? Was Elisha going to somehow sort of scoop the problem out of the, the water here? Of course not. And what about salt? Salt in water doesn't make water better, does it? It actually makes it worse. It becomes bitter, it becomes undrinkable and, and unpalatable. How then could these two objects that Elisha brings do any goods? Neither the new crews nor the salt had any power to improve the city's problem. There was nothing magical in the salt or the bowl. Yet Elisha cast the salt in and it tells us in verse 22, the waters were healed. These simple and small and insufficient objects were the instruments used by the Lord's. And friends, this morning, what a picture this is of how the Lord so often works. He often loves to use instruments that are seemingly inadequate. If God had so desired, he could have just let Elisha speak, couldn't he? He could have just said, the waters are healed, and they would have been healed. But he didn't. 
And Christ, you think, for example, when he healed the blind man, he took clay and he put it on his eyes. He didn't have to do that, but he used an instrument. And the wonderful thing is that this is what God loves to do, isn't it? He loves to use simple and he loves to use small and seemingly insufficient things in this world to bring about his glorious purposes. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes this clear, doesn't he? That it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It's the simple preaching of Christ crucified that saves sinners. It's so balmy, it's so ridiculous when you think about it, yet God uses it. Remember what he says, unto the Jews it's a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul goes on in that chapter, doesn't he, to encourage us, and he says that God have chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God have chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised have God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And we see example after example of this in the scriptures, don't we? God takes a stammering Moses and he puts him before Pharaoh. He takes a doubting Gideon and he he uses him with only a small army of 300 men. And yet they defeat 120,000 Midianites in the day of battle. He takes a shepherd boy, doesn't he, David? One small stone in a sling and he brings down Goliath. We can just go on and on. Samson, jawbone of an ass to defeat so many people. Shamgar uses an ox's goat. God uses the weak and the inadequate instruments to fulfill his will. And I think the greatest example of this is the day of Pentecost, isn't it? If you think about the day of Pentecost, there was one simple sermon by one very simple unlearned fisherman. And yet 3,000 souls are gathered into the kingdom of Christ. And friends, what an encouragement this is for us. We may be the nothings and the nobodies in this world's eyes, but the Lord may use even us. It doesn't matter how young or old we may be, he can use us. Let me encourage you here this morning, especially those of you who are older and more advanced in years, God loves to still call those at the 11th hour to work in his vineyards. You may yet still be a blessing to someone and pray that would be the case. There's a great prayer that you can pray, Lord, use me. When you wake up in the morning, pray that, Lord, can I be a blessing to someone today? May I be an instrument in your hand for for goods. Lord, me, Lord, use me for your glory. I was reading recently about D.L. Moody, you know, the American evangelist. In his memoirs, he quotes his old Sunday school teacher. And his Sunday school, Sunday school teacher said this, that he had seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his. And when he was converted and welcomed into membership, the Sunday school teacher said that he had seldom met anyone more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. He said, when I saw that boy, he looked useless. Could that boy ever be used by God? And yet he was. Friends, it may be true of us. We may be inadequate instruments but the Lord may powerfully use us. And of course, he may even use this church. We can pray the Lord would 
would do that, that this would be that light upon a hill for this city, and that souls would come and be gathered and brought out of the curse and into blessing. And we've seen then these two things this morning, this cursed city and inadequate instruments. But notice lastly with me, great grace. Great grace. Elisha throws the salt into the water, and miraculously the waters are healed. And the wonderful thing is they weren't just healed for that day, or they weren't just healed for that week, but they were healed forever. It says there that they were healed unto this day. It was a perpetual thing. It was done for forever. There was no more death. There was no more barrenness. And of course, you come to the time of Christ and the city of Jericho is still there. The waters, instead of being evil, were made good. Instead of death, there was now life. And remember, this was a city that had stood in defiance against God. But now the Lord, through Elisha, had healed it. I think what we see here is great grace, don't we? The Lord had not dealt with this city as it deserved. Instead of, uh, instead of bringing and keeping that curse upon them, he had brought blessing. The curse had been replaced with his grace. And friends, here's a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? When sinners who are under the curse come and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they go from death to life. The, the, the curse is lifted. If you're a believer here this morning, you know this, don't you? That curse has been lifted from you. And it's lifted, isn't it, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's lifted because of God's great grace. That passage that we read from earlier in Galatians chapter 3 tells us it's because Christ died on the cross. Remember what it says, that he redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's why we're... Those of you who are believers here this morning know this joy and this blessing because of what Christ did at Calvary. And just as God provided the means of blessing for Jericho, so he's provided the means of blessing for us as sinners. And the gospel is like this refreshing, clear and pure water, isn't it? That we drink and we drink and we drink and there's no death in it, there's life. Remember what Jesus said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him like a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. It's interesting, isn't it, that Elisha went to the spring to perform this. He went right to the fountain. He went right to the source of the problem. And Christ did exactly the same thing, didn't he? He came to deal with the root of the problem. He came to deal with sin, and he came to deal with men's hearts. And what he's done is so efficacious, it was successful. What, what Christ did didn't, didn't help to make us savable, but he came to save us. You know, Christ's work at Calvary cannot be bettered. And for those of you here this morning who are Christians, what happened at Jericho has happened in your own heart. The waters have been healed. The curse has been, it's been lifted and it's all of God's grace. And so we should therefore well up in praise to God, shouldn't we, for his grace to us. His grace that's pardoned our sins. His grace that's brought us into union with Jesus Christ. His grace that means we're adopted into his family. His, his grace that's brought us from death to life. Friends, this morning do we praise God for his great grace. But just as I close this morning, let me just address anyone here who's not a Christian. Do you know that you're still under the curse of God? 
Did you notice in this passage that these men of the city came to Elisha? They came to the man of God for help. They realized the seriousness of their situation. And friends, here's the, here's the pattern for you if you're still a sinner. You have to come and ask. Not ask me, not ask another Christian in that sense, but you come and ask God. So you come to, to God himself through Jesus Christ. Lord, heal me. You see, hope is found only when we prayerfully seek the Lord. Our problem of sin and the curse will never be lifted until we come to the Lord. But I trust that all of us here this morning know God's great grace in our lives and that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to give us this water of life freely.